and welcome to the worship of Christ. I invite you, as always, as we do on Sunday mornings, to, to gather and be gathered around God's Word. We have been studying uh, for a while now, uh, for this entire year, in fact, the Gospel of Matthew. And the last few months, we have been in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. And um, it, it's really important for us to do some review work this morning to get a good sense of the context of what's happening here. And, and I want to take a moment to tell you a little story. It was about two years ago that my buddy Sutton was over there at, uh, at our rummage cell that we have in the gym. And Sutton was, you know, as he does, he, he kind of acts like he's a deacon, but what he's really doing is trying to get in early so he can find out if there's any great deals he could, he could kind of get a hold of before the general public gets there. And he found something that was the desire of his heart. Over in one of the corners, as he was looking through frames of poster, of like poster Posters, you know, that they were like, had been framed. He found a poster of, uh, from the early 90s of a group called the Power Team. Do y'all remember the Power Team? The Power Team was um, basically a bunch of evangelists who took steroids and they would go around and, and they would lift weights and they had these steroid bodies and they would wear jumpsuits they looked like wrestlers and that they would go and they would, uh, they would say things like, by the power of Jesus, and then they would tear a phone book in half, right? And they constantly quoted uh, scriptures out of context to make it seem that this is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and then they would roll up a frying pan or then they would tear up a phone booth. Um, I want to tell you that, that that scripture, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is really taken out of context in that, in that way. Uh, and, and so the reason I bring this story up is one, just to shame and impair Sutton, because he did take that picture and put it on his wall. I think that, that one, the rumor is that Sutton, yeah, I see you back there, buddy, that one, once upon a time Sutton tried out for the power team and did not make it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure uh, where you were lacking, Sutton, uh, but I would have rooted for you. But today I want to talk about context, specifically the context of, of Matthew 7, 7 through 14, because it's, a, it's going to be a section that you're all familiar with, but I, I'm not sure you know what it means. There's a famous quote by a, by a theologian named uh, Tom Carson, and, and Tom Carson, is uh, this quote is basically, it, it's a theolo theologian's nerd joke, right? This quote says something like this, um, you have to read scripture uh, you have to read the scriptural text in context or you will have a pretext for a proof text. Now, most people who are the average person goes, I don't know what that means. But for us theology nerds, what that means is that you can take uh, basically all the quotes from the Bible and you can remove them from their actual context of what, what's happening in, in the story, who's saying, who's speaking them. And you can shape those quotes to, to mean whatever you want because they're taken out of context. And so as we work on today's text, I want to first set us up with a good context of what is happening in the Gospel of Matthew and then what is happening in the Sermon on the Mount so that we can then understand what is happening in Matthew 7, 7 through 14. So let me give you some context into Matthew's Gospel. The great theme probably of all of the Gospel of Matthew is this theme that Jesus is the great King of Kings. We see uh, the very first thing in the Gospel of Matthew, you see one of those lineages. And, and what they're showing you is that, that Jesus has the lineage of a king. And at his birth, you have these wise men who come to pay homage to a, the new king of the Jews. And, and king, king Herod, the, the, the current king, is mad because there's a new king of the Jews. Matthew's telling you a great story that Jesus is this great king of kings. And we see in his baptism, it's almost like a, a royal commissioning of Jesus. He is the king who has long been foretold in prophecy. And if you understand that Jesus is this great king who's come, you can start to see that the Sermon on the Mount is, is a moment where the king, King Jesus, starts telling his followers 
what it means to live as citizens of his kingdom. And he, he begins to differentiate. Here's what it means to look like the world, and here's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, you know, listen, followers of Jesus are not free to live as they like. We've talked about this before. You do not have to follow Jesus, right? But if you do choose to follow him, you have to live as he says. There is no one foot in and one foot out. There is simply the way of the king. If you want to know Jesus as Savior, you have to know him as Lord also. And so what what the Sermon on the Mount intends to do is it tends to contrast the way of the world against the way of King Jesus. And there are some basic ideas in the Sermon on the Mount that are very repetitive. And one of those ideas that you're going to see over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount is that you have no righteousness of your own. You are not a good person. You, it's impossible for you to, to stand before God and think that you deserve his grace, right? It's, it's not true. It's impossible to, to read the Sermon on the Mount and feel entitled to the free grace of Jesus Christ. Rather, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you recognize that you're a wretched sinner, in need of the unmerited grace of Jesus. That's the truth, my friends. To say it another way, what Jesus says over and over is that kingdom living starts with humility and it starts with gratitude for for the gospel. It's the proper attitude of kingdom citizens to have humble hearts and gracious hearts. And and that that kind of that attitude of kingdom living is always contrasted against in the Sermon on the Mount, this arrogant, self-assured, hypocritical attitude that we often see personified in the Pharisees. So over and over again, we see that. And the Pharisees think that they're good people because of their religion. They've committed to keeping the religious laws. And and really, it's their religion that keeps them from recognizing that they also, or they too, are wretched sinners. that, That they too need God's mercy. They're blinded by the assurance that they're false religion provides. And this is fortunately or unfortunately the case for a lot of people in the world. And what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is that no religion can make a man holy by works and that no man or woman can be justified by the law. This is what, we, this is what we've got so far. I'm setting for you context. I hope you understand this. Jesus is going to tear down these false religions of the Pharisees and he's going to do it by showing that the standards of God are greater than the Pharisees or any Jews ever thought. And, and here's how he does it. What people thought was that, that you were guilty if you committed murder. But what Jesus says is, whoever is angry with his brother is guilty. You see, it's so much more than what they thought. The people thought they were guiltless if they did not commit adultery. And what Jesus says is, no, it's so much more than that. You, like if you have lust in your heart, you are guilty. And Jesus shows over and over again that where they thought they were guiltless, they had guilty hearts before the Lord. He's going to preach on, he's going to teach in the Sermon on the Mount about anger, about lust, about divorce, about lies and truth and, and revenge, and even the way we treat our enemies, the way we trust in money instead of God, the way we lay up treasure to simply rust as opposed to putting it into kingdom things, and the way that we are anxious, and the way we worry about our future as if God is not going to take care of you. And he begins to teach about the way that we, we judge and pass judgment on other people while thinking that we ourselves are guiltless. And again and again, what Jesus really is doing there is he's exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and really at the same time, he's exposing your hypocrisy. 
He highlights the places where we practice our fake religion before other men. Not to please God, but to please men. And he says, we can't be like those folks who just give money to impress other people and say prayers to impress other people and fast to impress other people because this is not the way of the king. What I need you to see this morning is that the way of the king is hard. It's difficult. It's hard for you to have a humble spirit. It's hard to be generous and to love your enemies, especially when they treat you poorly. And to stand up these days in in, in this world against temptations and lust, it's hard. Last week when we read together, it was about that that, that piece of scripture right before where we're going to read today. It was the the beginning part of Matthew 7. It was about, you know the verse too, it's about going to get that splinter out of your neighbor's eye while you still have a log in your own eye. And at the end, you still are supposed to go and get that splinter out of your neighbor's eye, but you first have to deal with the log of self-righteousness that's in your own eye. And that's difficult. It's really hard. Have you ever tried to go to another Christian and say, I've, I've been really working on my own sin and my own self-righteousness, but at the end of the day, I feel the Lord calling me to talk to you about something I see in your life. That's hard. It's almost impossible to do it w- without the gifts of God and, and have it be, go the right way. And then if you remember uh, the last verse that we read when we were, when we were together, it, it was like Matthew 7, 6, and, and it, it was this idea that... Um, God was instructing his people not to give what is holy to the dogs and throw their pearls to the pigs. And it's this idea that we don't waste the things of God on people who will reject the word of God. And can you imagine the difficulty of that task? How are we supposed to evaluate who will reject the things of God so that we don't waste the things of God upon them? That's hard. Now let me again remind you of why I felt the need to do so much review this morning. So much of the Sermon on the Mount is is caught up on how we're supposed to live. And and, and I think that this text today needs to be anchored in that um, in order for the words of Jesus this morning to make sense. So um, I promise we're not Catholics, but we do stand up a lot. And so I want to invite you to stand in reverence of the Word of God read. And we're going to get to our scripture this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 7, 7 through 14. And before we read, if you will join me as we say a word of prayer Uh, Father, we come to your word, and um, Father, we love you. We know that you are revealed in your word, but more than that, your heart is is also revealed in your word, and your heart for us uh, can be seen this morning, God, in in your word and by your word. So convict us by it, guide us by it, rule us by it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, and all the church said, amen. Uh, Beginning of verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's begin by talking about verses 7 and 8 this morning. Uh, We'll read them again. You're very familiar with these verses. Um, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. I'm sure that many of you know these words of Scripture Separated from its context, however, these verses could be understood without, you know, if they're not in their context, they could be understood to be a blank check for the Christian prayer life. Simply ask whatever you want, just tell God whatever you want, and, and it will be given to you, right? I think that some people believe that. I've heard some believers say that, that God wants you to ask for the desires of your heart, and the reason that you don't have the desires of your heart is because you simply haven't asked for them. But if you would ask, look, Scripture says that God will give it to you. What's interesting, though, for me is that the Word of God continually says that the desires of the human heart are wicked. Does this mean that that we are to ask for the wicked desires of our human hearts and God will give us wicked gifts? I don't think so. The context here for which we read this text here, ask, seek, and knock, is, is this context of all the hard things that Jesus is asking us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. How in the world are we to live as citizens of heaven? How can we be poor in spirit? How can we forgive our enemies? How can we humbly help our brother who was caught in sin? It almost feels impossible. And the solution that Jesus gives his followers is, if you truly want to live like a follower of Jesus, all you have to do is ask and seek and knock. You see, it's not about asking and seeking and knocking for the desires of your heart. It's about asking and seeking and knocking to be made into the image of Christ and to be like one who Jesus is calling us to live in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you know the language here, if, you, if you've kind of studied any of the Greek ever, there's this, it's not a one-time ask, seek, and knock. The, the Greek gives you this feel that it is a continuous asking and seeking and knocking. And, and so the way you live like Jesus is you ask and you keep asking that you might be like him. You knock and you keep knocking. You seek and you keep seeking. It's not a one-time thing. So how does the follower of King Jesus have the strength to live as becomes a citizen of God. Uh, They're they're always asking, they're always knocking, they're always seeking. And the truth is, there's something really beautiful about that. Like, stop and consider it for me. Because what it's suggesting is, is that the place you find strength for obedience and the place where you find wisdom is in a consistent relationship with the Father. You're always in prayer. You're always asking, seeking, and knocking. And you become a a forgiving person. And the way that you do that is is you continually ask the Father to help you forgive. And and you become a humble person. And the way you do that is you you continue to ask God to convict you of your own sin. So this this verse does not mean that you have a, a blank check to ask for the desires of your wicked heart. What it does mean is that you have a blank check 
to continue to ask to, ask to be made into the image of Christ. And when it's properly understood, it gives us this great assurance that if we truly ask to live as become the citizens of the heaven, everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, everyone who knocks a door will be open unto them. Like that's a great promise for your life. And Jesus gives us this assurance as he moves on. Look at verses 9 through 11. We'll read that together. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So here's the illustration, okay? Uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, they had these, these little stones that were round, and, and they were approximately the size and the shape of a loaf of bread that would be baked in a common house of that time. So you can see that they, they look very similar, and Jesus is there. He's probably kind of can point down to, to a bunch of those rocks and say, you know, which of you, if his son asked him for bread, would give him one of, one of these stones? Uh, to which the obvious answer would be nobody. Like, no, I wouldn't do that. I love my son, and, and, and like braces are expensive. I don't want to chip your teeth, right? And that's exactly the point. God does not give us wicked gifts. If you have a wicked heart, and, and, and he kind of says, like, and you being evil, he acknowledges the wickedness of our heart, and you being evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more can you trust that God the Father is going to give good gifts to his children? It's not about the desires of our wicked hearts, you see. Because God doesn't give us wicked gifts. If you ask for a fish, he's not going to give you a serpent. Remember, this is about finding the strength to live as Christ calls you to. So my charge to you Christians in this room today is that if you are trying to live as becomes the followers of Christ, you ask and continue to ask that God would help you do that. You knock and you continue to knock. You seek and you continue to seek, always being in a relationship with the Father and see how he showers you with good gifts. And, and, and Jesus isn't done. He goes on to suggest that since, since or because God gives you good gifts, um, because of this, look at what it says next. It says we have this freedom to be generous to others. Look at verse 12, the golden rule. So part of this idea that like, because God gives you good gifts, the golden rule. Right? Look at it with me. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, also do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In some very real sense, the golden rule is the ultimate expression of kingdom living. If you could kind of boil it down, what does it mean to, to live as someone in the kingdom? There's two main things. And Jesus one time is asked, he says, uh, they ask him, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? It's in Matthew 22. Verses 36 through, 30, 36 through 40. What is the greatest commandment, they ask Jesus. And this is what he says. He says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And he tells them, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and Jesus goes on to add, On these two commandments depend all the laws and prophets. It's this idea that if you could summarize all the teachings of the Old Testament, everything, that all the standards of God, you would come down to the most simple form is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You want to live as a citizen of heaven? Ask God to continue uh, and continue to ask him to show you how to love him more and to show you how to love your neighbor more because that's, that's basically what it all boils down to. I think that the golden rule, it's really a unique way to think about people. I know for us, uh, we've heard about it our whole life since we were kids, but we don't often do it. It's something you know, but it's, it's not something you do. Um, what you do if you, if you want to follow the golden rule is basically this, the basic premise. You think to yourself, what do I wish that someone would do for me? That's the basic premise. Once you know, once you know that, what you wish someone would do for you, you turn around and you do that for somebody else. Once you figure that out, it's pretty easy. And it, it, the simplicity of it is that it works in most situations of life. If you are in a conflict with someone, you're not getting along with them, you can ask yourself, what do I wish that person would do for me in the midst of this conflict? And you can go and do that for them, and you're following the golden rule. If you're married and you have a wife, and you could ask yourself, what do I wish my wife would do for me? And you can go and do that for her. If you wish your mom had, had said something to you sometime in life, you can turn around and say that thing to her now. It's really an antidote for being self-centered in life. You get beyond seeking what you want, and you give what you want to other people. And you can do this because you trust that God is giving you good gifts. Everything you ask for, everything you seek. This is a theology of generosity that starts with a father who gives you good gifts so that you can freely give what you wish someone would give to you to other people. But that's not what we do. Instead, what we often do is we treat others the way they treat us, right? You understand that? We don't treat them the way we wish. Or we, don't, we don't treat them the way we want to be treated. We treat them the way they treat us. So if someone's rude to us, we treat them rudely. If someone acts like they're too good for us, we act like we're too good for them right back. But that is not the way of the king. Kingdom living is treating people the way we want to be treated in spite of how they treat us, and it's hard. However are we going to accomplish that? You're going to ask. You're going to seek. You're going to knock, and you're going to keep on knocking and keep on seeking and keep on asking that you may become to live as followers of Jesus because it works. And the reason that I can say it works, you can be skeptical if you want, but I can say it works because Jesus says it works. He says, everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks the door will be open unto him. The instruction of Jesus is that we're always in prayer, always petitioning the Father to help us love him and to help us love our neighbor. Now, as we come to our last few verses of the day, I want to tell you that they are a very dire warning here in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is warning that not everyone will be citizens of the kingdom. That some people will take a different path. And so look with me at what Jesus says. He's going to describe two gates and two paths and really two sets of people. Verses 13 and 14. Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In this illustration, there's, there's two gates, only two. There's a narrow gate, and there's the wide gate. The narrow gate is, uh, 
is seemingly not very easy to enter. It's hard to get into the narrow gate. You're not going to accidentally go through the narrow gate, but the wide gate is it's much easier to go through. You might not even know it's a gate. It's just so big. You're walking with your friends, and you, you find yourself going through it. Now, now, once you get through this narrow gate, there is a path. Uh, and, and, and that path, Scripture says, is, is hard. I imagine, uh, you know, however you want to think through that, I think what Jesus is saying is the way of following me is hard, Right? And, and, and because the gate is narrow and because the path is hard, very few people will enter that gate and take that path. On the contrary, once you get through the wide gate, like once you, you walk through the, the wide gate, the path is easy. And many people will be on there. There's going to have a lot of people on that path. So you have two different gates. You have two different paths. You have two different crowds. You have the, the few and the many. And ultimately, you have two different destinations. The wide gate and the easy path lead to destruction, it says. And the narrow gate and the hard path lead to life. So I guess my question for you this morning is, how do you make sense of this illustration of Jesus? I I think this is one of those verses where we're called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus is asking you to consider which gate you will enter by. You can either go with the masses very unintentionally through the wide gate, or you can come alone and go through the narrow gate. You know, others might be walking the road beside you, but you have to choose your path. And I say this with with a great awareness of God's work of election. I do. But election is not an excuse for you to fail to choose a righteous path. There is an urgency In Jesus' illustration, you must make a choice today. You must enter a gate. Like in the historic context, as we're talking so much about the importance of context, in the historical context, Jesus is actually speaking to Israel. Their true king, the king of Israel, has come to them to give them life, and they must decide which gate that they will take. Will they believe in Jesus, put their faith in him, and share in his kingdom Or will they take the wide gate? And unfortunately, very few people do. And soon, Israel faces its own destruction. Yet, though Jesus' initial audience was Israel, the truth is this this illustration holds up for you and me. Before you can enter the narrow gate, you need to realize that it's narrow for a reason. To say that the, the gate is narrow is to suggest You can only go through the gate on Jesus' narrow terms. If you want broad terms, if you want to come through however you want, the broad gate is for you. To go through the narrow gate, you have to trust in Jesus as the Lord of your life and the Savior of sinners. And to see yourself, you have to see yourself as one of those sinners. To go through the narrow gate, you have to strip yourself of self-righteousness And you have to love the things of God and be committed to loving others as yourself. It's a hard, narrow path that you're choosing to walk. But it is the only path that leads to salvation. However, my my biggest fear is this. I think there are a lot of people who believe that the wide gate and the easy path somehow also lead to eternal life. Like, I, I believe that somehow 
sometimes Satan has hung a gate over or a sign over the wide gate that says, uh, this, this one is the shortcut to heaven. And I wonder how many people who are on that, that, that easy path that have taken the wide gate think that they're walking towards the Lord. Let me summarize this sermon. If you properly understand this in its context, what Jesus is talking about when he says that we are to ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking, is it's not for the desires of our hearts. It's that we would ask, seek, and knock to be made into the image of Christ and to be like a, a, a citizen of heaven, to, to, that we would follow what, it, what the Sermon on the Mount is about, that we would love God, that we would love our neighbors, that we would do the things that it was hard to do. And, and, and as hard as that is, how would we find strength to do that? We would find strength to do it by, by asking and continuing to ask, seeking and continuing to seek, knocking and continuing to knock. And when we do this, what we read is that the Lord gives us good gifts. And because the Lord gives us good gifts, we kind of get that so then or because or the therefore, because of these good gifts, we can do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And then, then he kind of comes to this point where he's like, okay, what are you going to do? Which gate are you going to go through today? It, 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 he's beginning to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. He's beginning to ask questions. There's two gates. Which one's for you? Like I said, friends, at the beginning of the sermon, none of you have to follow Jesus. But if you choose to follow Jesus, if you choose to go through the narrow gate, you're coming through on his terms. I leave you with this warning of Jesus today. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Thanks be to God. And may you choose to believe in Jesus and to enter through the narrow gate. Friends, let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word here of how we're to love our neighbors and, and how we are to ask you for the strength to do so well by asking and continuing to ask and seeking and continuing to seek and knocking and continuing to knock. Father, I pray that by your spirit we would be in prayer asking for these things. And in doing so, we would be believing in faith and living as you called us to and traveling through that narrow gate and walking that, uh, that, that tough path. In all this, for your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. amen.